and take a seat. Um, hey, we're getting the air conditioning fixed this week. So everybody said, amen. If you're sitting right here, I don't know, does that bother you? You guys good? It's coming on you, that one too. And we're just trying to throw it in the room. So yeah, to help in any way we can. Hey, Immerse was great yesterday. We spent 12 hours praying, fasting, singing, seeking the Lord. So I thank you for joining, participating, uh, serving, and uh, it was an awesome time. We will continue to be devoted to prayer. We will continue to structure it into our lives and into our schedules. Uh, We really believe with all of our hearts that the Lord will move in response to prayer and that we will only do as much as we have prayed to get done. And we really believe that. And so thank you for joining us in that yesterday. We do that three times a year. Uh, And so let's continue to be devoted to that. If you're new, there's a connect card on your seat. Please fill that out. We'd love to get to know you a little bit more and help you in your spiritual journey, wherever that may be. Today's message is called Close the Door on the Devil, all right? Close the Door on the Devil. You may be like, what in the world are you talking about? Well, I'm going to show you, all right? Uh, What the Bible is going to show us today is that your behavior and my behavior is much more than what we can see. There's much more happening than what we can actually see about it. And the question I just want to propose and kind of help you begin to think through this morning in your life is, that is there the potential and the possibility that you are leaving the door cracked a little open to the destructive influence of the devil, to the destructive influence of evil, to the destructive influence of the anti-kingdom? I want to help you today really close those doors to slam them shut uh, and do the opposite is to open doors for the work of the Holy Spirit. So to close the door of the work of the enemy and to open the door of the work of the Holy Spirit Uh, This is really the crucial aspect of behavior and of growing to become more like Jesus. And so I want us to see that this morning. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's go. Let's go. We're going to see how the Lord wants us to behave, right? And we're going to also see how much much more than that. Uh, If you're here today and you say, man, I don't even know the Lord yet. I'm not even in that category, just seeking, learning. I'm so glad that you're here. I hope you see. uh, I think you might have a misconception about how Christianity works, how the rules of Christianity works, how God expects us to live. What does that mean for you? Uh, What does that look like for you? And I want to help you understand certainly how God expects you to live in light of what God has already done for you in Jesus. And so if you're just wondering, man, what is Christianity all about? You're going to see how we're supposed to live. You're going to see that it's obviously a beautiful way of life, but you're also going to see how God empowers us to do that through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so give me the next 30 minutes, open your mind and ears to how the Lord might be wanting to reveal himself to you this morning as well. So Ephesians chapter four, verse 25 says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. So that's where I'm getting this phrase to close the door on the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. Rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And finally here, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, 
forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So as we've been talking about, the first half of Ephesians is theological information, it's transformation, it's uh, the things you need to know about God, about yourself, and about how God, uh, who God is and what that means for you. The last half of Ephesians is how that theological information should transform your behavior and the things you should do and not do in the way that you should live. So this is going to continue to be a theme. So maturity, as we've seen, is about how you think, and then it's about how you live, it's about what you know and how that information transforms and should shape your life. Uh, and so as we dive into this, uh, I know as you, as you listen to this or read it, even as a Christian or not a Christian, it could feel like a, just a list of rules, you know? It's like, I thought we already had the Ten Commandments, you know, and so now we have these, we have a new, a new list of rules. It's do this and don't do that and do this and don't do that. And uh, it seems like a bunch of rules for life. Well, of course, at some level it is that. There are clear rules. It's actually a blessing and a benefit that God's pretty clear about how he wants us to live. It's not ambiguous. He's not like, well, maybe, uh, which is much of the world around us, you know, what's right, what's wrong, how are you supposed to live? That's kind of how the world feels. Like nobody can really tell you that's wrong and that's right. You know, that's a pretty miserable way to live. Uh, God's given us actually a ton of clarity. This is what he wants you to do. This is what he doesn't want you to do. Uh, as we would say, even in the terms of how the world gives it, uh, these are rules for life, which is kind of great in one way. So let's not disparage that totally. But I also want you to see it's much more than that. And I want to kind of change maybe your perception of who God is. Uh, to give you an example of this, uh, a few months ago we were at a retreat and my kids were swimming in this pool and they were having fun, but you're not supposed to jump into the pool which is like ridiculous. I mean, who expects, is there no kids allowed at this pool? Like, what do you think kids do in pools, all right? So, but it's, it's like four feet, it's kind of shallow, you're not supposed to jump into the pool, all right? Well, obviously, kids are jumping in into the pool. I mean, kids are not paying attention to this rule. I didn't know this rule existed. Eventually, uh, the guy, there's a guy there sitting at the front desk, and he's given my son, specifically my son Josiah, three warnings. Josiah jumped in the pool, he said, you can't do that, you know? He's a kid, he, you know, five minutes he forgets, and he's like, oh, water, you know, and he jumps into the pool again. He can't do that. Okay, sorry. Water, he jumps into the pool again. So, and then the guy's like, okay, you're out. I'm like, you're gonna kick him out of the pool for this? And I went over there to talk to him about it, and this was literally the phrase he said. He said, that's what I do. I sit here and make sure everyone follows the rules. I thought, are you proud of that? Like, is this... This is where you've come in life. You're sitting here making sure everyone follows the rules. You're telling little kids to not jump into a pool. Like, so that's what I do. You know, it was like, okay. I mean, I tried to defend him and speak on his behalf. It didn't go so well. But that's kind of how many of you view God, you know? Like he's sitting there at the front desk of your life. And if you were to ask him, what are you doing? You'd think he'd say, well, that's what I do. I sit here and I make sure you follow the rules. And if you don't follow the rules, shame on you. I kick you out, you know? Uh, I give you a few warnings and then I'm done with you. I think that's how many of you, even if you might know better in your mind, that's kind of how you deal with God. He sits there and makes sure you follow the rules. So when you break the rules, if you are a Christian and you have any sense of like a spiritual life to you, you feel guilty, you feel bad. You think, well, God's disappointed in me or, or he's gonna kick me out or discipline me. He's just here to make sure I follow the rules. And when you do follow the rules, you feel like, hey, I'm doing a pretty good job. You know, uh, It's all kind of about rule following. We think so often that God is sitting there at the front desk of your life, just making sure everyone follows the rules. 
But that's not exactly how this plays itself out. Although the following and being obedient to the rules of the Lord is obviously super important. But I want to give you a different understanding of how to navigate the rules of life and how to think about God in light of the way he wants you to live. He does want you to live a certain way, but he's not sitting at the front desk of your life making sure you follow the rules. This is not his main desire in your life. Uh, Let me do this now by showing you a a few things. The first is remember the passage from last week. So verse 25, the word therefore is connecting the next several verses and the flow of thought to the previous several verses and the flow of thought. And what we talked about last week was that we need to put off the old self and put on the new self, but we don't do this by trying to put off the old self and putting on the new self. We don't change by trying to not do things and trying to do things. It says in verse 23 that we must be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And as we learned last week, particularly renewed in our thinking and understanding of Christ. That the goal is not to become a better version of yourself, but to become everything Jesus already is for you. You don't actually change yourself, but as you give Jesus time and attention, he changes you. That's how spiritual growth in life works. So now he's connecting that thought process of a way to change. How do you change? How do you transform? He's connecting that now to a list of things you should do and not do. And so we have to take that connection seriously. A way for you to think about this is Christian maturity is not about behavior modification, but sanctification. These are not the same things. That's how you've defined sanctification is that if I can do behavior modification, do this and don't do this. Sanctification isn't that. Sanctification is simply the process of becoming more like Jesus. It's to become everything Jesus already is, which obviously includes things I should do and not do. But that's not priority A, do this, don't do this. The priority is to become like Jesus, to give him my focus, to see who he is, to learn him, And as I do so, he changes me and I actually then become to do and not do the things I should do and not do. So Christian maturity, if we're talking about how do you grow up in the Lord, it's not about behavior modification. So this is true. Discipleship is not about behavior modification. Parenting is not about behavior modification. Being a good friend or an accountability partner is not about behavior modification. Any effort you put in to helping someone else grow in the Lord should always be about sanctification which is making the priority becoming more like Jesus. That's why the, the last part of this passage in verse 32 says, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving, just as God also forgave you in Christ. So the simple breakdown is to treat others the way Jesus has treated you. If you were to think of, man, how am I supposed to live my life? Instead of thinking rules this and that, you think, I basically need to treat others the way Jesus has treated me, which is a better rule than treating others as you would want to be treated because Jesus treats you better than you would even treat yourself. Jesus takes care of you better than you could take care of yourself. Jesus shows more mercy and grace than you even give yourself. Jesus treats you better than you would even treat yourself. So a better model of life, instead of treating others as you want to be treated, is to treat others as Jesus has already treated you. Because he treats you way better than you could ever treat yourself. This is how the gospel begins to inform our behavior. So as we talk about these lists of things we should do and not do, remember that the, we're going to get back to this at the end, is that it's all rooted in doing things as Jesus has done them to us, forgiving as God has forgiven us, being kind as God has been kind to us, treating others as Jesus has treated us. And now hear me, 
You cannot treat others as Jesus has treated you if you're not engaging with Jesus to watch how he treats you. That's the point. Once again, you're focused so much on what you're doing and not doing, as opposed to looking to Jesus, learning about him in the word of God, thinking about how he behaves, being in awe of how he treats you, on a practical level, experiencing his grace and mercy and kindness towards you, and then on the flip side of that, you extend that to others, as opposed to trying to work it up and will it up in your life. So I'm gonna be more kind. That's not how it works. I need, to, I need to see Jesus's kindness towards me. I need to sit in that, enjoy that, reflect in that, read about it, pray about it, thank him for it. And as that happens, I'll begin to extend the same kindness to others. So this is how the gospel informs what we do. So behind the list of rules is the reality of Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us, the reality of the gospel that he lived, died, and rose again for us, that we are not accepted by God based on our behavior, but based on the work of Jesus Christ. This, this reality of the gospel is the substance of behavior change or sanctification. What I also want you to see behind this list of do's and don'ts are these other two spiritual realities at play that transform the way we think and provide more substance to a list of doing and don't doing. As you saw in the text, there are these two phrases that should stand out for us. One is, he says, give no opportunity to the devil. And the other one, he says, is do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So in regards to your behavior, in regards to your everyday choices, the things you do and don't do, there are two very distinct and profound spiritual realities at play that make this way more serious than you could ever imagine. The possibility is at hand every day. The possibility lies before you that you are either through your choices opening the door to the devil to provide him more space to influence your life or you are opening the door to the Holy Spirit to not grieve him on your behavior but to agree with him and to do the things he wants you to do. So now behind your choices and the words you use and the way you live your life are these three very big realities. This is the gospel, the possibility that you are opening the door to a satanic, demonic, devil influence, and the possibility that you could be grieving the Holy Spirit, who, if you are a Christian, you claim to love, you know? If you are in a, a healthy marriage or a healthy friendship or whatever, you don't enjoy uh, making the other person sad based off your behavior. You know, you don't wake up and think, well, I can't wait to make this person sad with me. I can't wait to do something that makes this person sad because of what I've done. Well, that's how it should be with the Holy Spirit. So I want you to understand these things. So I'm, there are two things for you to write down. They're a little wordy, but this is important. So. I've, I've really tried, this takes a lot of, I've just really, really tried to think about how uh, the gospel of grace, the work of Jesus Christ, the reality that he's done everything needed for me and I can't earn my acceptance with God, how that takes place in light of my everyday choices that still matter and my behavior that matters. How does that inform that? And then also to think well about, even though I am a Christian and I have the Holy Spirit, there's this spiritual reality at play that I can still create space for the devil to work in my life, even though he can't own my life. And there's still, even though God loves me, there's still a reality in which he can be grieved at my behavior. And so these are important to say, we gotta, we gotta think well about this. God loves me and he'll never stop loving me, but he can be grieved by the behavior that I, I have. 
And the devil doesn't own me. He has no, no hold in my life because Jesus has broken that chain through the cross. He's conquered the work of the devil. But at the same time, there is an everyday reality in which I can give him more temporary influence. All right, so in light of that, I don't think we can grow very well unless we think deeply about how these things work. Because I think some of us take God's grace for granted. And we think, well, God loves me anyways. So my behavior doesn't matter that much. When that's not true. And some of us take behavior too much. We say, well, I've got, my whole relationship with God is dependent on whether I do and don't do these things. Which is also not true. Some of us think, well, I've got, the cross has completely conquered the devil. So I don't need to worry about what he does. That's not true. But some of us give too much to that. And say, well, he's around every corner bothering me at every step. And I have no chance. That's not true either. So there's somewhere in the middle with thinking well about this. Which is why these phrases are something you need to write down. So before we get into rules of life. Here are two realities that we need to understand. The first is this, is that the gospel is the ground of our acceptance with God and what governs our behavior to others. We treat others as Jesus has treated us. So how does the gospel and the fact that Jesus has done everything necessary to save me uh, practically work its way into my everyday choices that I'm still responsible for? It's this, the gospel is the ground of our acceptance with God, so God does not love you more or less based off how you behave today. The gospel and the work of Jesus Christ is the ground of your acceptance with God. That will always be true. The gospel is also what governs my behavior to others. I treat others as Jesus has treated me. So the gospel is the ground of my acceptance with God and it what governs my behavior to others. You might wanna leave that on the slide a little bit longer, it's kinda long. Give people a chance to write it down. You need to think deeply about these things. The second one is this. You're definitely going to need to leave this one up for a while. Ungodly conduct makes the devil happy but grieves the Holy Spirit. So we think, hey Scott, can we get that on the screen? Ungodly conduct makes the devil happy but grieves the Holy Spirit. It temporarily gives the devil more space to influence your life. Maybe we're having screen problems. I'll say it slow, okay? Ungodly conduct makes the devil happy but grieves the Holy Spirit. If I'm thinking, what are these spiritual realities happening behind my behavior? Well, technically speaking, as I behave in an ungodly way, the, it makes the devil happy. He enjoys that, which is certainly not something I want to do as a Christ follower. And then it grieves the Holy Spirit. It temporarily, the word temporarily is important, gives the devil more space to influence your life. So ungodly conduct temporarily gives the devil more space to influence your life. It opens the door that should be slammed shut. So although the devil doesn't own you, he cannot condemn you, or he certainly cannot take you to hell, he has his work over his, his accusations based off your sin to condemn you have been demolished by the cross. Still, in a practical, everyday way, if you choose to act, even as a Christian, in an ungodly way, that will give the devil more space to influence your life. And in regards to the work of the Holy Spirit, it diminishes the experiential blessing of a healthy and powerfully active relationship with the Holy Spirit. So my ungodly conduct gives the devil more space to influence my life. And then on the flip side, in terms of how, how it engages with the Holy Spirit, it diminishes, once again, it doesn't, these words are important. It doesn't take it away, doesn't nullify it, 
It doesn't change that the Holy Spirit dwells in me, but it diminishes the experiential, my everyday blessing of a healthy and powerfully active relationship with the Holy Spirit. So as we're going to see, and as we saw in Ephesians 1, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, once you trust in Christ, doesn't leave you. He won't forsake you. He won't change how he feels about you. But at the same time, your experience of his love and power actively at work in your life can fluctuate. And to pursue and to live in ungodly conduct is going to diminish, as it grieves the Holy Spirit, it's going to diminish the experiential blessing of a healthy and powerfully active relationship with the Holy Spirit, which you know, obviously, in all your relational life, that behavior against that relationship is going to diminish the experiential blessing of the relationship, right? In any of your relationships, behavior that's in contrary to the good of the relationship is going to diminish your experience of the relationship. So the Holy Spirit is a person. So you're engaging with him in a relational way. And to deny or to reject or to do things that are contrary to his desires and to the good of the relationship will naturally diminish on an experiential level, even though it doesn't change the status it will diminish on experiential level the blessing of a healthy and powerfully active relationship with the Holy Spirit. So these two things are really, really important as we talk about certain behavior realities. All right, a couple more thoughts now to summarize the passage. I think there are two big principles before we get into this that are important. The first is this, change is not only possible, but expected. So if you think about, okay, maybe you feel stuck in a certain place or maybe you're not sure What you just need to see from this passage as we read through things you should do and not do is that change is not only possible, but change is expected. How do I know it's expected? Because it's commanded. And God will not command that which he does not empower you to do. Okay? Change is not only possible, but expected. Change is not a long shot. Change is not a half-court shot. That's how some of you are picturing change or overcoming certain things in your life as a long shot. And you think, well, I'm not even sure if it's possible. Not only is change possible, but it's expected. And it's expected because it's commanded and God does not command that which he does not empower you to do. God will never ask you to do something once you're in Christ. Okay, now outside of Christ, before you trust in Jesus, without the Holy Spirit, you cannot do anything God asks you to do. So he does give commands, and if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you cannot follow them, which is why you're separated from God and why you need Jesus. You, apart from the Holy Spirit, cannot please God. It's impossible. So that's why Jesus comes. He lives a perfect life. He dies on the cross. He rises from the dead so that when you put your faith and trust in him, you received his perfect life in your place. And now with the Holy Spirit, you can now do what God has commanded you to do. So outside of Christ and outside of the Holy Spirit, you cannot do what God has commanded you to do. But inside of Christ, with the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, Not only is change possible, but it's expected. God will not command you to do that which he does not empower you to do. Therefore, if God said you should do it, you have all the resources you need to do it. You are not the victim of that. You are not, uh, you know, lame in that way. You are not paralyzed and I'll be able to do that. You know, we get so, we get stuck into so many cycles and say, well, I just can't overcome this or I just can't do this or how could it be possible to do this? And we let the devil feed those lies into our head to say, yeah, that's too hard. You can never, you're just, just the way you are. But that's not how the Bible talks at all. 
God's, if God says it, that means we can do it with his help, obviously, not on our own. All right? It's that for all my basketball fans, it's like when Kevin Garnett said, anything is possible, okay? This is how you should feel. He won the championships, anything is possible, okay? You should wake up every day and think, anything is possible, you know? I can live the way God wants me to live, which will be in my best interest. I can do that today with the power of the Holy Spirit. Stop, ho-hum, woe is me, I just can't stop it. God does not talk like that. If he told you to do it, then he's giving you what you need to do it. So don't pity party yourself. Stop pouting and walking around. Walk with some confidence and authority. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. If God told you to do it, it's not a long shot. He's not asking you to reach something you can't reach. It's not, sometimes we feel like it'd be like if I told my little kid to grab something from the top shelf, he'd be like, well, you just watch him. Hey, you know, like God's just watching you like, I can't reach, I can't reach. That's how you feel, but that's not at all the case when you do it on your own. But if the kid just looks up at me and says, hey, dad, can you help? Then I pick him up and he can get it. But you're trying to grab the, the purity off the top shelf on your own. And that's why you're so frustrated. You just need to look at Jesus like, can you help me? And Jesus is happy to be like, yeah, that's what I'm here for. Okay, change is not only possible, but expected. So as we go through a list of do's and don'ts, you need to read them like a world of possibilities. You can live this way. The second thing about how sanctification works, and then we'll get into the list, is don't just refrain, but replace. This is important. Don't just refrain, but replace. So as you look through this list, and whenever he says, don't do this, he doesn't stop there. He always replaces it with the alternative behavior. So he says in verse 25, put away falsehood and speak the truth with your neighbor. So it's not enough to just not lie but you need to replace lying with telling the truth. So that's how he's talking about how change works. You need to, don't just refrain, but replace. And some of us, I, I call it, we have a Christianity of moral avoidance, which means you just live every day trying not to do the wrong thing. As opposed to living every day with the authority of the Holy Spirit to pursue proactively doing the right thing. And to not just refrain from bad behavior, but to replace that behavior with Christ-honoring, intentional ways of living. You know, it's one thing to not drink soda. It's another thing to drink water like you're supposed to. Right? And some of us have a Christianity that's like, I'm just going to stop. I'm going to try not to drink soda. But you're not drinking water either. So now you're dehydrated. And now you'll drink anything that's put in front of you because you're so thirsty. Instead of just refraining from the wrong behavior, instead of just refraining from lust, you pursue a purity of life. Instead of just refraining from greed, you pursue generosity. And the, the power is in the pursuit of the positive thing. So that as I fill my life with the right things, I slowly become more like Jesus. And a year from now, two years from now, progress is being made. And eventually I find it much easier to refrain from certain things, not because I've spent two years running away from it, but because I've spent time running towards the right thing. And I've grown in love with what's good. And I've grown in love with what's godly. And my internal life has changed and my desire desires are being transformed. And as I become a person of generosity, I naturally become a person less greedy. This is how it works. 
You cannot just refrain, but you must replace. You need to take, replace vices with virtues. So in light of the fact that change happens by replacing, I'm going to walk through now this list of things you should do and not do with that in mind. And so we're just going to boom, 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 knock them out. The first thing it says here is to replace lying with telling the truth. And I want you just, okay, as I go through this, you could just, you could say, well, of course, I know I should do these things. Even if you're not a Christian, you're saying, yeah, I mean, nobody's like, yeah, lying's great. Hey, you know, nobody's saying that. So, but I want you to, you got to leave some room now for the Holy Spirit to start poking you. So well, I know I shouldn't lie. And then he's like, you know, yeah, but you've been lying. And you, instead of just crumbling under that, now you need to work, you know. The gospel is the ground of your acceptance with God. So when the Holy Spirit convicts you, you shouldn't just fall apart because God still loves you. But at the same time, now he's trying to see transformation happen. So you need to replace lying with telling the truth. You need to replace lying with telling the truth. As we know from the scriptures, the devil is the father of lies. So when we lie, we are never more like the devil than when we're lying. This is his, as Jesus says, his native tongue. It's how he speaks. He never tells the truth. On the opposite side, Jesus is the one who always tells the truth. The Old Testament teaches us that it is impossible for God to lie. So Jesus always tells the truth. It's impossible for him to lie. The devil always lies. It's impossible for him to tell the truth. Therefore, we are cracking the door open for the work of the devil the more we persist in lying. We are creating space for him to operate. He loves lying. And so when we're lying, we're joining him. It's what he loves to do. So you need to see the spiritual reality happening behind. You need to replace lying with telling the truth, proactively telling the truth, telling the truth quickly. I want you to understand too from this passage, look what it says. So put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Why? What's the word here? For, for we are members of one another. This is interesting. So the reasoning for telling the truth is that you are connected to each other. Meaning that the fact that your behavior affects your community should be the primary, one of the primary reasons for your obedience. We are members of one another. A great importance of speaking the truth is building trust. All right, here's something you understand in life, but maybe you haven't thought about this way, that love is given, but trust is earned. Love is given, but trust is earned. Just because we are commanded to love one another does not mean that we are supposed to, we have to trust one another. Love is given. That's how we should treat each other. Love is not earned. That's how you should treat everybody. Love is given because Jesus has given that to us. But trust is earned. Trust is earned in a community by people consistently telling the truth to one another. By being people of their word. By showing up when they say they're going to show up. Doing what they say they're going to do. Never gossiping. Not lying about other people's behavior. No slander. Trust is earned and community is only as healthy as the ability of the group to trust one another. So he says, don't lie because you're connected to one another and you need to be able to trust each other. And if you lie, you're breaking the bridges of your relationships and you're cultivating a hesitant community that's filled with assumptions as opposed to a trusting, confident community that's filled with love and truth-telling. Love is given, but trust is earned. You need to replace lying with telling the truth. 
Some of you, and you know this, and you've joked about this with other people, you lie so much, you lie about things that don't even need to be lied about. You, it's, just, it's just so second nature at times that you're just lying for no reason. You're not even trying to get out of anything. You're just exaggerating stories or adding certain things or saying this instead of saying that. And you need to begin to catch yourself because if you consist in that way, all I'm telling you from the scriptures is you're opening the door for the work of the devil against you. All right, this is what's happening behind your behavior. Now, how does the gospel inform this for me? It's simply, I treat others as Jesus has treated me. Therefore, Jesus has always told the truth to me. Jesus has never lied to me, not once, never. And therefore, if Jesus has always told the truth to me, then I should always tell the truth to others. As I give Jesus my attention and time and receive the truth-telling, won't-hold-back, good-and-bad truth-telling of Jesus, I become a person of the truth, and I dispense the truth Jesus has given me to others. I do not wake up and lie less and tell the truth more by choosing to do so. I begin to become a truth-teller as I receive the truth-telling of Jesus in my life. And if I meditate on and let Jesus tell the truth to me and I receive how Jesus treats me, that he never lies and he never holds back and he always tells the truth. Therefore, I become a person of the truth. Internally, I'm changed. I'm renewed in the spirit of my mind and I mimic how Jesus treats me to others. And because Jesus always tells the truth to me, I become a person who tells the truth to others. That's how the gospel begins to inform this. Okay, the second thing, replace anger out of control with anger under control. Now, you should notice it doesn't say replace anger with peace. It's important phrasing. And obviously, peace is, is preferable. But you want to see here, it says, be angry and do not sin. Replace anger out of control with anger under control. So the goal of the passage is not for you to never be angry. That's not what Jesus has said here. The goal is to replace the kind of anger and to stay under control. You can be angry, but do not sin when you're angry. So anger, in a biblical term, can be an appropriate emotion, but it is also highly volatile and therefore must be handled with care. Anger can be an appropriate emotion, but it's really volatile. And, you know, we're so... Uh, weak and so unable to control ourselves, we don't really do righteous anger a whole lot. Okay, we're not very good at that. So just because I'm saying there is a right kind of anger, don't assume you're using it. You're probably not, okay? All right, none of us really have enough. We're, we're learning, okay? So I'm like, well, yeah, that's me. I'm righteously angry all the time. No, you're definitely not, okay? So just don't, just don't. But, but the passage doesn't say don't be angry. It says be angry and do not sin. That's something we should think about. So there is a righteous, appropriate kind of anger. And before I get into how you control your anger, I do want to take a minute and say, there's a sense in which some of us should be more angry. You're so indifferent to evil and ungodliness in you, you need to get angry at the sin that's destroying your life. You're so indifferent to the poor and the marginalized and how people are treated. You need to get angry to the injustices in the world around you. You're so indifferent to how people are being treated. You're so indifferent to how you're doing in your own life. And you need some Jesus flipping tables. I'm not going to take this anymore. There is something better kind of righteous anger within you. Some of you need to pick up some fight. You're passive. You're indifferent. People are struggling. 
The world around us is going to hell apart from Jesus. Some of you need to get angrier that the devil is making progress in areas of your life, in areas of your family, that your coworkers apart from Jesus are gonna go to hell. You need to start getting angry. You need to cast off indifference. You're too passive. You need to start getting emotionally connected to the things God cares about. You see people in need and you feel nothing. This is not acceptable. You see sin in your own life and you feel nothing. This is not acceptable. Some of you need to get angry. Now, most of you and all of us need to control your anger, okay? So I just gave a pitch, but that's for you to be angry for the right reasons, which most of us are not. So how are we gonna be angry and not sin? Well, here's a little phrase for you, okay? When feelings are intense, you need to be intentional. I'm just gonna, I wanna help you now. It's like a little counseling session, okay? When feelings are intense, you need to be intentional. The Bible calls this in the Proverbs, ruling your spirit. Let me give you one of my favorite verses that I use all the time in discipleship and parenting and all that. Proverbs 16, 32 says, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Meaning that true strength is anger under control. True strength is anger under control. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty meaning that the mighty man is not the one who uses anger to forcefully get his way. That's cowardice and weakness. The mighty man is the one who can control his anger and let it slowly work itself out and choose the righteous version of it to be angry at the things around them. And the one who rules, I love this phrase, you need to use it all the time in your life, rules his spirit. Meaning, it's much more difficult to rule your spirit, one person, than to conquer an entire city. And the person who can rule their spirit is stronger than the one who can conquer a city. This is the point here, anger under control. Anger under control is a sign of true strength. James 1, 19 through 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And here's the phrase, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Meaning, your anger is not producing the end of which you are hoping. Your anger with others, with friends, is not producing more righteousness in their life. Your anger with your children is not producing more righteousness in their life. Your anger with coworkers is not producing more righteousness in life. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, we ought to be slow to get angry. Some of you are way too quick. Your anger is out of control because you have a short fuse. And we're gonna see how, how, how important this is, but let me give you another, another con control tip, all right? I'm calling this one, calm down by sundown, okay? Calm down by sundown, all right? So the first one was, when feelings are intense, you need to be intentional. Don't let your emotions rule you. The second one is calm down by sundown. You see what it says here? Do not let the sun go down on your anger. 
So just a simple phrase. You'll probably remember this more than that one. Calm down by sundown. Calm down by sundown. Here's the reason for this. If anger is left unchecked, it makes us more susceptible to attacks from the devil. So the fact that you're not in control in dealing with your anger is creating more space for anger to work in your life. I saw a commentary that said, an angry mind will necessarily think evil thoughts. When have you ever thought wonderful thoughts in an angry state? You know, Philippians 4, 8, whatever's good, noble, excellent, worthy of praise, think about these things. Well, when you're angry, you're not thinking about those things. An angry mind will necessarily think evil thoughts. Calm down by sundown. If anger is left unchecked, it makes us more susceptible to attacks from the devil. Biblically speaking, anger should be a temporary emotion experienced rightly, not a consistent status. And some of you are consistently angry, and that's the symptom and sign to tell you your anger is out of control. Anger should be a temporary emotion experienced rightly, not a consistent status. Okay? And it really bothers me that even in the world around us, because of how crazy some people who claim Christ can act, the Christians can be seen as angry people. When it's the exact opposite, it should be. Anger should be a temporary emotion expressed rightly, not a consistent status. Anger, when it's extended, gives more place for the devil to operate. So this phrase, give no opportunity to the devil, it certainly works itself out in the entire passage, but it is connected to anger. So that's true with lying, it's true with everything, but it isn't connected to anger. And I think there's something particular about anger, especially since the devil loves violence, that opens our minds and our hearts to the works of the devil and to go down the path of the devil. Calm down by sundown. Another way to say this is that the longer it sits, the worse it gets. All right, the longer it sits, the worse it gets. You need to put that in check and you need people in your life that can help you put that in check. Now, how are you gonna do that? Waking up, I'm gonna be less angry. No, once again, it's the gospel. You treat others as Jesus has treated you. Be slow to get angry with others because Jesus has been slow to get angry with you. Super slow. I mean, as slow as it can get. Just, you know, think about all the times you've rebelled against him, even though you know better, have treated others maliciously and have disobeyed the Lord God who is perfectly holy. One little sin is enough to separate us from God and send us to hell forever. And that's what we deserve. And you and I have sinned millions of times and Jesus hasn't destroyed you. He has been slow, slow, so slow to be angry with you. The patience of Jesus is just unbelievable. If you sat and thought about it, man, man, man. Jesus has been so patient with you, way beyond the point at which you would even deem necessary. If you saw how Jesus treated you like that and you looked at other people, you would say, you need some boundaries. If you looked at the way Jesus just let you do all these kind of things and didn't just completely cut you off and you applied that to another relationship, you'd say, you need some boundaries, that's unhealthy. You can't let people treat you that way. You know, you need some self-esteem, you, can't, you know? You can't let people do that to you. That's what you would say. You would say how ridiculous it is that over and over and over and over and over again, we do the wrong thing, and over 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 again, Jesus chooses to forgive. Every time, and particularly in the cross, all of your sins, past, present, and future, are already forgiven. 
So look, okay, if you just took some time to meditate on the slow to get angry and patient work of Jesus in your life, and your mind was renewed with how Jesus treats you, then all of a sudden, a little bit over time, you would find yourself treating others as Jesus has treated you. The reason you can't stop being angry is because you're trying to stop being angry. And that doesn't work. What you need is a renewed mind by learning the patience and love of Jesus Christ. That as you look upon how slow he is to be angry with you, you would begin to extend that to others. All right. The next one, replace stealing with working hard to share. He says here, do not steal. Do let the thief no longer steal. But once again, what's the replacement behavior? Rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The point of working hard is so that you can be generous with others. Not so that you can build personal wealth, although it's not bad to be wealthy. Praise the Lord. The Lord's given you resources. Enjoy them and be generous with them. But the point of, you see, you don't just stop stealing or taking or let me just throw in being greedy, okay? You may say, well, I haven't stolen anything since I stole a Milky Way from 7-Eleven when I was 10, you know? You would think, well, I don't really steal anything. Oh, why don't you just throw in some taking things that don't belong to you in the sense where your jealousy, you want things that don't belong to you in the sense of your greed? Okay, replace stealing with working hard to share. Jesus is the example always for us. And as I said before, the more you pursue generosity, the more you will not struggle with stealing and taking what doesn't belong to you. You work hard so that you can share. I love that. Don't, he says, doesn't say, don't replace stealing with not stealing. But he says, don't steal and work hard so that you can share with others. So generosity is the antidote to thievery. Jesus is the example again. How does the gospel work? So the, 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 the rule here is to work hard to share with others. And Jesus has worked hard to share with you. Jesus, as a matter of fact, took on a human body and endured the reality of living on earth and the pains that come from being human, which he did not have to do. He was a carpenter, which means he actually worked hard with his own hands, okay? And not only all of those things, but ultimately he went all the way to the cross and bore the wrath of God in your place, nails in his hands and his feet, the wrath of God on all the sins of humanity. He bears all of that. He works really hard so that why? He can share eternity with you. And if Jesus has borne the sweat of human flesh and borne the wrath of God and did all of these things that he didn't have to do so that he can share heaven with you, then ought you not bear the heat of the day and the hard work at the job you hate and the boss that you don't like and all it takes to take care of your family, ought you not to bear the hard work so that you can share with others? We treat others as Jesus has treated us. He has worked hard so that he can share. And therefore we work hard so that we can share with others. As I meditate on how much Jesus went through so that he could give something to me, 
I then become a person who's willing to go through hard things to give stuff to other people. And I become less greedy, less selfish, and I'm transformed into a person who cares and who loves to share. Okay, the next one, replace hurtful words with helpful words. Remember, you need to be letting the Holy Spirit work in your life, okay? None of us are perfect. We all have messed up and are messing up in these areas. Some of us have bigger, different struggles than others. But the Lord wants to help you transform. Replace hurtful words with helpful words. You see, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. The word corrupting, it can also be translated in other versions as filthy. It's actually a rare and colorful word in the New Testament that means rotten or putrid. It's used to refer to rotten fish or rotten fruit. So the question is then, how does your words make things smell around you? How do your words make things smell? Do they make an environment of rottenness, putrid, decaying, or do they bring life? We don't just not say bad words, you know. The goal is to not just not say cuss words. Okay, I'm going to get these five cuss words out of my life, you know. Which you should. I don't, I don't know how many times I have to walk through Christians with cussing. I don't understand. But if you want to talk to me, God cares about the words you use. Okay, so uh, that matters, all right. Anyways, that's a side note. That's a side note. Okay. But the goal is to just not cuss. That's not the goal, to just not cuss. But to replace negative words with words that build up. And so the corrupting talk is way more in the line of slander and tearing down than it is of just random bad words you use. You should be way more concerned about gossip and slander as a way of talking. And you replace that with good words. So good ear is actually the opposite of rotten. So negative words and talk make things decay, right? So negative talk in marriage will make your marriage decay. Negative talk in parenting will make your relationship with your kids decay. Negative talk in relationships will make your friendships decay. It makes them rotten. It creates a rotten environment. But words that build up bring life. And so all the time, you're either breaking down or building up. Proverbs says the power of life and death is in the tongue. Your words should be means of grace to other people. They should build up. Think about Jesus in this. I mean, a simple way is to say, speak to others as Jesus has spoken to you. Think about how Jesus speaks to you, even in correction and discipline. Think about how Jesus is never mean or rotten with you. Think about the kind of things you might deserve to hear, but the kinds of things you do hear from the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. Think about how he speaks to you. Enjoy how Jesus speaks to you and then speak to others in the same way. Jesus speaks to you so that you would be built up. Jesus speaks to you so that you would have authority in his name. Jesus speaks to you so that you would walk in assurance of his love. Jesus speaks to you so that you walk in assurance of your status with him. Jesus speaks to you so that you would know who you are and know who God is and be assured of his love and confidence in you. That's how Jesus speaks to you and therefore you ought to speak to others in the same way. Okay, the next one, replace meanness with kindness. Okay, this is like the kindergarten one. Replace meanness with kindness. Don't be mean especially with an election coming up. Okay, how ridiculous it is that Christians can be so mean. It says, look, hey, no slanderous talk, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and malice. I'm just gonna put all those phrases together and say, don't be mean. 
Replace meanness with kindness. Proverbs 29, 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. A fool is totally bitter and completely angry and says everything that's on his mind. Don't say, I wear my heart on my sleeve. Say, I lack any self-control. That's not a badge of honor to say everything you think. That's not something you should be proud of. A fool gives full vent to his spirit. A fool says everything on his mind. A fool acts in accordance with his feelings. But a wise man, as we saw earlier before, rules his spirit. And a wise man, when he feels mean on the inside, considers the way of Jesus and chooses kindness. So instead of meanness, choose kindness. Okay, replace grieving the Holy Spirit with enjoying the Holy Spirit. These are the last two. Replace grieving the Holy Spirit with enjoying the Holy Spirit. It says here, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Think about this. I was trying to reflect on this more and more about what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit. And I think the essence of it is that my relationship with Jesus and with the Holy Spirit is personal. He is a person and I'm in relationship with him. He loves me and is working for my good. So therefore the Holy Spirit is grieved when I do not walk in the Spirit and do not join him in what is good for me. It is a relational rejection when I choose the other way. And I was pondering this to say, how much sin would we avoid if we truly cared about our experience with the Holy Spirit? How much sin we would avoid if we pursued a closer relationship with the Holy Spirit and cared about whether he was grieved by our behavior or not? The Holy Spirit is grieved when my life is not congruent with his holiness. The Holy Spirit is grieved because he has sealed me and saved me from my sin, and then I choose to return to the sin for which Christ died. This grieves the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is grieved when I neglect the good gifts he's given me to live a life of purity and holiness and blessedness, assurance and love, joy, peace, the fruits of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is grieved when I reject the good gifts that he's given me, just like a father would be grieved when his children rejects good gifts he tries to give them. The Holy Spirit is grieved when we live in ways that are destructive for us, just like you grieve when people you love are doing things you know harm them. The Holy Spirit is grieved when we choose ways that are destructive for us. These are ways we grieve the Holy Spirit. Instead of grieving the Holy Spirit, enjoy the Holy Spirit. Be thankful for who he is and what he's done in you. And there'll be more throughout the rest of Ephesians on that. The final thing is replace your way with the way of Jesus. Replace your way with the way of Jesus. Be kind to one another, forgiving as God in Christ forgave you. So be patient as Christ has been patient with you. Be slow to be angry as Christ has been slow to be angry with you. Give grace to others as Christ has given grace to you. Give people a second chance as Christ has given another chance to you. Don't treat other people according to their sins because Christ has not treated you according to your sins. Do unto others as Jesus has done to you. Replace your way with the way of Jesus because ultimately he is the one who has closed the door on the devil through the cross and the resurrection. The devil now has no way to accuse or condemn you, but because of what Jesus has done, his ultimate victory over you has been slammed shut. And in the name of Jesus, you walk in his authority and in the way of Jesus. You enjoy the victory Jesus has already won for you and you do not dare give more room for the devil to operate because Jesus has slammed the door shut. And that's what Jesus wants to do for many of you this morning. So I want to have the band go ahead and come up. We're going to have a prayer team. I want you now to respond to the Lord, to take what he's doing and saying to you, to take particular areas and ways of life, 
to bring them to him, to ask for prayer if that's what you need, and to take some moments to respond to God. And so let me pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, and now we ask that you would speak and lead us, and that you would help us to not just hear what you have to say in your word, but to respond appropriately to it. And so would you move amongst us by your Holy Spirit to make us more like Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.